Amen. I'd like to welcome you at this time. Um, I'm, this is going to be kind of a, a weird way to start, but I'd like to welcome you throughout this following weeks to bring your notebook, to bring a journal, to bring your Bible that you use for your devotional purposes. What I like, or maybe you're a tablet guy, you got your iPad or your phone, uh, whatever you take notes on in regards to your devotional life, we're going to be going through some very key scriptures that I think all believers need to be aware of, scriptures that we all need to highlight and uh, be familiar with, because I believe that these are scriptures that help us defend our position on the person of Jesus Christ, help us understand why we believe what we believe. So I'm going to share with you so many different scriptures uh, today that I believe these scriptures are vital for us to be very familiar with. Today, we begin a series entitled Simply Jesus. Simply Jesus. And the focus of this series is twofold. What we want to do is, number one, we want to uh, declare and, and, and basically uh, state that we believe in the Jesus of the Bible. We believe the Jesus that is revealed through Holy Scriptures. And secondly, uh, that we unapologetically and unashamed and intentionally bless and exalt the name of Jesus Christ. Right? So the purpose of this series is, number one, the declaration that we believe the Jesus of the Bible. And number two, that we will exalt his name. Right? Now, I think that's very important, and, uh, and, and, and I'm excited about this. This is going to carry us all the way through Easter, and uh, this is something that I think we need to be aware of. This message, by the way, is going to be more doctrinal than practical. I guess it's the best way I can describe it to you. That means that we're going to be looking at more philosophically, more in the way that we think about Jesus today more necessarily than the things that we need to do tomorrow on practical living. And I know that that's a difficult thing because most of us want to take stuff that we can apply right away and, you know, get running with. But I believe this is foundational stuff. Stuff that if we don't think rightly about is going to affect that we do the way that we do life. What we think about Jesus really matters. The Bible says in, in Timothy, uh, Paul speaking to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely Right, So that you can save both yourself and your hearers. And what is he implying? That what you think about life, what you think about God, what you think uh, uh, about discipleship, it's going to affect the way that you live. So the way we think really matters. We have, to, we have to think. We have to process what the Scripture tells us and be aware of that. And as we look at simply Jesus, we're basically saying we're looking at the person of Jesus and through Scripture growing and thinking rightly about him. Let me just say this. Jesus is not who we define him to be or who we make him to be. He is who he says he is and what the Holy Scriptures declare about him. We cannot just make Jesus whatever we want him to be. We cannot redefine him. Jesus is who he says he is. What the Bible says about him. Let me show you this slide with different pictures. There's all kinds of different representations of Jesus. Many of us are familiar with the California Jesus. Right? His hair is like perfectly blonde, right? Pantene Pro-V hair with the blue eyes. Right? And like the perfect beard, right? Super beard jealousy for some guys. Right, so and, and you have culturally in all kinds of different places a different way that people depict Jesus because people have this deal about Jesus. They try to make Jesus fit into their image. And it's understandable that in human history we will find many attempts of trying to figure out God, what God is, if God is, what God looks like, where God is, how to get to God, and what is God's disposition towards humanity. It's something that we have many wrong answers to. 
humanity has the tendency to try to make God into our own image. Making God in our image is problematic. Making God into what we think is problematic. No, we are made in his image. And if there is a God, and if we believe the God in the Bible, this is what we're actually saying. God is someone outside of us. God is greater than us. God thinks and processes things in a way that we are incapable of processing without him. And because God is outside of us, if I am to ever come to the knowledge of God, it is because God reveals himself to me. That is what the Christian claim is. The Christian claim is God His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. He is outside of us. And the only hope that we have is that that infinite God would reveal himself to us. It's very important. In light of this truth, our interest is not to make Jesus something that makes sense to us or that fits into our lifestyle. Our interest is not to, uh, to make Jesus someone who is not offensive. Our interest is to know Jesus for who he really is according to the Holy Bible. Now, If we value the pursuit of Jesus for who he says he is, according to Scripture, then we have to value truth. If we value truth, we cannot make God into our own image. And if truth is something that we're going to value as we pursue this, trying to understand who God is, who Jesus is, according to Scripture, there's several things that we have to claim about truth. Number one, truth justifies and condemns. The claim of truth condemns some and justifies some. Truth affirms and denounces or offends. Truth is not relative and cannot be redefined. This whole idea that what's truth for me doesn't have to be truth for you and it doesn't have to be truth for others, you know, because everybody can have their own truth. If truth is truth, then there is a lie and everything outside of the truth is a lie. It's very important. It is the massive problem that we have today. This idea that truth is relative and we can make truth whatever it is that we're comfortable with. Truth is not relative. Truth cannot be redefined. Truth is absolute. And truth matters more than our feelings. The ultimate defining judge of truth is not how we respond emotionally to it. It's not how our hearts feel about truth. Truth is greater than our feelings. And how we respond to truth could lead to knowledge or to deception. How we respond to truth really matters. It really matters. So when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, we're in pursuit of truth in regards to who he is. As we look at the scriptures, We want the scriptures to reveal to us who Jesus is because we know that if we try to understand him with our own means and our own understanding, we're going to make a mess out of him. And so because of that, there's several things that we have to claim even before we look at the scriptures. Number one, let me just point this out, or as we look at scripture. Number one, Jesus is not progressive or progressively changing. Jesus is not changing from generation to generation to fit in the culture. You know, you ever, you know, it seems to me like sometimes, not, not all the times, but, you know, a lot of times, you know, we, we, we talk so differently about those who have gone to eternity um, uh, when, when they have gone to eternity 
uh, than the way we used to talk about them when they were with us. You know, when they're with us, sometimes we're like, oh, that Joe, that's good for nothing, lying scoundrel. I wouldn't trust him with nothing. That guy is a lying, cheating, worthless. I tell you what, Joe dies. Oh, my goodness, wasn't he so good? He was so faithful and true. Mm. And you're like, is this the same Joe? Is there another Joe? Is it just a common name? That now, You know, you wonder, what happens there? What happens there? And you know why, because it's not, it's not polite to talk about people's dirt once they've gone into eternity. But it isn't honest to lie about it either. You know, we feel awful about the fact that we didn't say, sometimes the reason why is because we feel awful about the fact that we didn't say what we needed to say, you know? Sometimes, a lot of times, let's just be honest, as a culture, we have a hard time with honesty. Honesty is not high on the priority. Uh, you know, a lot of times we speak about people after they departed the way that we do because they're not here to speak up for themselves. <laughs> and because it's easier to make the departed what we are most comfortable with. It's easier to make someone what we're most comfortable with. I have a, um, I say this with respect. Uh, what has become of Muhammad is not what historical Muhammad is. Historical Muhammad is not the Muhammad that is worshipped and that is praised, excuse me. And so the difference here, why do I say that? It's because there's a problem with Jesus in regards to this. Number one, because the large body of evidence that speaks to us about the life of Jesus, no matter cross religion, speaks of Jesus being a very righteous man. Even the Muslims would say Jesus was a very righteous man. So righteous, we even Muslims believe in the, uh, in the virgin birth. They believe that Jesus was so righteous that they cannot believe that God would allow Jesus to die on the cross. But they don't understand the love of God. Yeah, so there is nothing that would imply in the history uh, of humanity that Jesus was a man who was not righteous. But there's also another problem. Jesus is not departed. He's alive. And because he's alive and still living and at work today, we can't just progress Jesus to be whatever we want him to be be in our culture does that make sense we can't make jesus whatever we want him to be jesus is the same yesterday today and forevermore his character is the same yesterday today and forevermore what he stood against yesterday is what he stands against today and forevermore what he justified or justifies yesterday is what he justifies today yesterday and forevermore Vital scriptures that support this, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Revelations 22, Jesus speak, and I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Matthew 17, Jesus is hanging out with John and James there at the Mount of Transfiguration. And as they're up in this mountain, Jesus transfigures. In other words, he shows the disciples his glory. And Moses and Elijah are sitting next, or they're standing next to Jesus, and Peter doesn't even know what to do with himself. He's seeing this glorious sight. And as he's seeing this glorious sight, he's like, uh, I, I know what let's do. Let's build an altar for Moses and for Jesus and for Elijah. And God rebukes Peter from heaven, and says, this is my son. What is God saying there? Number one, Jesus is the fulfillment of both, both the law and the prophets. 
Number two, do not put Jesus on the same level of Moses and Elijah. This is my son. Jesus was not trying to be palatable. He was not progressing with culture. He is who he is, who he was, and who he will be the same. Second, Jesus is not an opportunity. Jesus is not uh, progressively different, and Jesus is not an opportunity. Sometimes people treat Jesus and Christianity and church as an opportunity, you know? John and James, the disciples, saw following Jesus and, and, you know, following his lead as an opportunity. And they say, hey, Mama, we need your help here. Why don't you go talk to Jesus? I'm paraphrasing for sure. <laughs> and why don't, you, why don't you ask Jesus, if, when he gets into his kingdom, if we can sit on his right and his left? And Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. You know, this, you find this story, very important story, in Matthew chapter 20. And Jesus says, can you actually take the cup that I'm about to drink? And in their minds, they're like, sure, we can take the cup of a king. You're going to drink the finest wine, eat the greatest delicacies of the world. We'll take your cup. And Jesus is like, you don't know what you're talking about, but indeed you will drink my cup. But those positions are to be appointed by my Father. John and James saw this as an opportunity of authority and Jesus said, no, this is about your yielded to surrender to the point of death. There is another man by the name of Simon the sorcerer who, when he got saved in Acts chapter 8, he was a man of great influence who operated in darkness, but he got saved, gave his life to Christ. And when he saw Peter, who was used by God to, to, to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit in people's lives, he thought, Boy, I really want that power. And he offered to pay Peter money so that he can have the power to bring about the baptism of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. And Peter said to him very literally, Simon, to hell with you and your money. That's the exact translation. Simon, to hell with you and your money. How dare you think that you can purchase the power of God? And Simon was cursed. And Simon prayed, oh, oh begged Peter, please pray for me that the things that you have declared will not happen to me. Right? Simon saw Jesus, the Holy Spirit, as an opportunity to advance. And sometimes, you know, I don't know about you, but you ever ran across a business that had the fish and they sounded like a Christian business, but you did business with them and you found out you sh they should probably remove the fish? <laughs> Anybody ever been there? Sometimes people see Jesus as an opportunity. Jesus is more than an opportunity. He's a person, and he's going to hold us accountable. Hitler saw Jesus as an opportunity. He knew that in order for him to have power and go about his acts, he needed to act like a Christian, and he said he was a Christian. But what he really did is support the establishment of the German Christian church that removed the cross, that removed Jesus, and allowed him to be the Messiah of the movement. And that he's not the only one who has assumed that position. And ultimately, and the last thing is this, Jesus, in regards to misun misunderstanding Jesus, Jesus is not what we could be if we were religious enough. Here's another point. Jesus is not what you and I could be if we were religious enough. There are many different religions who have different points of view on the person of Jesus, and though I respect the different religions, I want you to understand I respect uh, their position. I do not agree, and we do not agree with many of their positions. Number one, the Mormon faith believes that, uh, 
believes that Jesus is just like us in this sense. The Mormon faith will declare, and you can look it up on their own website, that you and I existed with Jesus in the heavens as premortal beings, right? And that we were all same spirit, and that um, Jesus was chosen to be the Messiah. But really, they, because uh, it, they make us as these premortal beings that existed before our birth, that were there with Jesus uh, before, uh, before we were created, then we are of the same essence of Jesus in that sense. And if we're of the same essence of Jesus, that makes Jesus less than who he is. And who is Jesus? He's fully God. And we are not in any way, shape, or form the nature of God. We're made in his image. We're made in his image. We're not the nature of his image. The Jehovah Witnesses do not believe Jesus to be almighty God and do not worship him and thus take from him the glory that he rightly deserves. Jews altogether reject him as Messiah. Muslims declare him to be a high-ranking prophet, one of the highest prophets, but they refuse to give him worship. As a matter of fact, the greatest sin in the Muslim culture, the cardinal sin, is to declare Jesus or declare anyone to be the Son of God. And in today's culture, we have a Jesus who is a pacifist. You know, this pacifist Jesus that kind of just relates to everyone, who's okay with everything, who's okay with everybody. And there's this religion or, or this idea of Jesus is just a social justice Jesus. And really, what does that do? Rob Jesus of lordship. Jesus is Lord. And we have so many irreverent songs that have been written about God. And I just want to share with you some of the lyrics of one of the old songs written in the 90s. And it goes like this. If God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face? If you were faced with him in all his glory, what would you ask if you had just one question? And yeah, yeah, God is great. Yeah, yeah, God is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us? Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home do you understand the ramifications of the blasphemous lyrics that i just read and this person is probably it's not aware i'm not judging them of being aware of what they're writing but think about what he's saying or what she's saying god is good yeah yeah i heard that before god is great sure but what if he's just one of us just a slob just someone who you know, is lost and doesn't even know where home is. Do you understand the ramifications of humanity if God didn't know who he was or where he was going? God is not, God became like us to identify, to identify with our sin sickness, but he's greater than us. He's fully God. Are you with me today? You understand what I'm saying? He's fully God. Proof of the fact that Jesus is fully God, his sinless life, his virgin birth, he receives worship and his resurrection from the grave. Four pillars of the life of Jesus Christ that the church could never deny. Jesus was, lived a sinless life. Jesus w was born a virgin birth. He received worship and he resurrected from the grave. If you lose any of those, you lose the entire gospel message. So what does the Bible say about Jesus? Now, I know that I'm making a big assumption, and that assumption is clearly that I believe that the Scriptures are divinely inspired by God. And for the most part, I know that many of you believe that the Scriptures are divinely inspired by God, but maybe some of you are struggling with the reality of Scripture. And I want to tell you why I believe the Bible to be the divinely inspired Word of God. Number one, because of faith. 
I have faith in the word of God. And what is faith? Faith is the evidence of the things that I cannot see, and it is the strong conviction that I have of the things that I hope for. I have faith in the Bible. There are people who don't have faith in the Bible. They put their faith in secular science, but it's faith nonetheless. The real question that we have to ask ourselves is, what evidence are we going to put our faith in? What truth claims are we going to put our faith in? I read the scriptures. The scripture says this, the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. And I look at the complexity of the world and the way that we've been created, the complexity of DNA, the complexity of our fingerprints, the complexity of all the animals, the fact that when I look at a woodpecker and I think about the fact that, boy, a woodpecker has this cranium that protects his brain so that when he pecks against the wood, he doesn't, you know, knock himself out to death. That bird did not evolve. That bird was created just as he is. And I say to myself, I believe in an intelligent designer. Right? Or I can believe this. There was nothing, 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 nothing. Million, billion, trillion years, million, billion, trillion more. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Boom, everything. Woo, amazing, incredible. Now what should I put my faith in? Do you see how ludicrous it is to make the claim that those who have faith are ignorant and uneducated? You see the lie that so many of us have bought into? Science is not against God. Science gives glory to God. Because of faith. Second, because of the unity of Scripture in the midst of 40 authors in 1,600 years. 1,600 years of a, and 40 authors throughout the span of all those generations wrote the account of, 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 of the Bible, and there is unity in it that is undeniable. There's no other document in the history of all of humanity that can claim that. Not only unity, not only, uh, but unquestionable honesty. There is a level of honesty that makes people extremely uncomfortable with the Bible. I get the privilege to hang out with the Muslim community once a month and talk about the Bible and the prophets and how we understand it. And I tell you, they are completely uncomfortable with how honest the Bible is with Abraham. Completely uncomfortable with how honest the Bible is with Moses. Completely uncomfortable with the fact that Jesus would die on the cross. Even that is a witness of the veracity of Scripture. Third, I believe the Bible to be the divinely inspired word of God because of the evidence of Scripture, the archaeological findings of Scripture, the geographical truth of Scripture. Again, like no other book, it's completely filled with archaeological and, and geographically uh, uh, um, um, facts, things that we can see. And because like no other book, uh, it has prophecies that are so relevant that have been fulfilled and are still affecting us today. And because like no other book, it has proven to be indestructible no matter what humanity does against it. Over and over again, you have people who stand up against the Word of God, and the Word of God is still the number one bestseller in the world. The number one book that's probably smuggled throughout the world. Right? The most important scripture that exists in the world. 
It's beautiful. I think of the, the gentleman Voltaire who said, before I cease to insist, the Bible will cease to insist, right? But his house actually became a printing press for the Bible. And take that, devil, smack down for you, right? Back to the question. So what does the Bible say about Jesus? Because we need to make sure that we're worshiping the biblical Jesus because there's a whole lot of Jesus that is not Jesus at all. What does the Bible say about Jesus? Number one, it tells us that Jesus is the eternal creator God. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1, 15 on down. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rules or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or superior or have the supremacy or have the dominion and authority. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. One of my favorite portions of Scripture. Let's focus on what the Bible says about Jesus. Number one, he is the pure manifestation and representation of God. We cannot see the invisible God, but when Jesus came, he revealed God to us. Number, uh, secondly, he has priority in time and supremacy. The Bible says he is the firstborn of all creation, and some have used this against Jesus, and they say if Jesus is a created being, then he's not an eternal God because the Bible says firstborn, but that's a misunderstanding of the Scripture. Firstborn here is actually used to speak of superiority or of supremacy or of excellence or beyond that which is created. As a matter of fact, in Hebrew culture, they speak of Yahweh God as firstborn, not because he was born out of anything, but rather because he's supreme over everything. He is supreme over everything. All things were created by him. In other words, Jesus created all things. And he is before all things. So he is before all things, and that means he's eternal God. He is the head of the church, and everything was created for him. You were created for Jesus. You were created for Jesus. Let that sink in. Another great dialogue that I think you need to be familiar with is John chapter 8, verse 39. People are discussing with Jesus and having these religious disputes. And, you know, they're separating from Jesus, saying that they belong to Abraham, but Abraham is their father. And Jesus says to them, You're not, Abraham is not your father. The f Satan is your father. The devil's your father. He's a liar, and he's the father of lies. His native language is a lie. And I really can't think of a greater insult. Have you ever thought, of, I mean, his native tongue is a lie? That's a, that's, a, whew, that's a terrible thing to say about someone, right? And he says, your father is the devil, and his native tongue is a lie. And why is that? Because they're not willing to receive the truth. And what truth are they not willing to receive? That Jesus is fully God, the Son of God. You understand? And in the middle of that discourse, Jesus said to, him, to them, I tell you what, Abraham rejoiced to see this day. Abraham was looking forward to this day being fulfilled. And he did see it. He said, Abraham did see it, and he rejoiced, and he was really glad. And they said, wait a minute, are you trying to tell us that you were there with Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. 
How can you tell us that you were Abraham? See, Jesus was making a claim that either he lived with Abraham here on earth, or rather that in the heavenlies there was something revealed to Abraham by Jesus Christ that Abraham rejoiced over. Do you understand the claim that Jesus is making here? And they're trying to check Jesus on this. What are you trying to say? You're not even 50 years old. And Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, before Abraham was Yahweh, I am. And for that reason, they wanted to stone Jesus because he was making himself to be God or he was declaring to be God. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty God. Number one, Jesus is creator, eternal God. Number two, Jesus is worthy of worship. Some of the many examples of scriptures that show us uh, Jesus being worshipped. The wise men came to the baby and uh, worshipped him and offered gifts. Demonic entities would throw themselves and say, we know who you are, the son of the living God. Right? And they submitted to his authority. He is anointed by a woman who perfumes his feet and, then, and, and, and cries tears over, over his feet and, wa- and wipes them with her hair. The elders and the angels in the heavenly places worship the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He is worshiped in the Old Testament. You got Joshua chapter 5 when Joshua was going around Jericho and there is a man with a sword drawn out. And Joshua says, are you for us or against us? And he said, neither. I am the commander of the armies of the living God. Joshua worships. And he says, what would you have us do? And he says, take off your shoes, for the ground you stand is holy ground. Daniel, chapter 9 and 10, you have a revelation of Jesus before he was born. And why am I sharing you this? Because Jesus was the same yesterday, today, forevermore. He was worshipped in the Old Testament, and you need to be aware of that reality. That's very vital that you understand that Jesus, why? Because Jesus didn't just all of a sudden happen while he was born here. It was just a part of his eternal reality. Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says this about Jesus, verse 11, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus is eternal creator God. According to scripture, Jesus is worthy of worship. And according to scripture, Jesus is the only Savior and Lord. He's the only Savior and Lord. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. There is only one name given to men under heaven by which men can be saved. I am, in John Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Unquestionable, undeniable claims. You know why? Because truth doesn't make apologies. Truth allows people to respond to truth. And if Jesus was not trying to make himself palatable, and if he did life just declaring truth and people became his enemies or submitted to him, then you and I have to accept that the same way that they responded to Jesus is the way that they'll respond to us if we make a commitment to declare truth. If you declare truth, you will have people who will not like you. You got to accept it. You got to ask yourself, is truth worth it enough to pay the price? Is truth worth it enough to pay the price? 
So there's this powerful scripture we're going to close with this found in Revelations chapter 5. A lot of times people throughout the year say, oh, pastor, are we going to get into Revelation? Uh, I want to have a series on Revelation. I want, I want you to explain some of that stuff. And the reason why they're asking is more than likely they, they want to know more about what the end times is going to look like. They want to know when these things are going to be fulfilled. They want to know more about timelines and things like that and, and how to understand these image, Ip, rich imagery that John gives us. And all that's very important, but I want you to hear it. I want you to hear this. The central, most important point of the book of Revelation is that Jesus deserves the glory and the worship. You begin Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, and John gets a revelation of who Jesus is and for and how Jesus is worshiped. The entire 1, 2, and 3, and 4 is a revelation of who Jesus is, how Jesus is worshiped, and Jesus giving commands to his church. You get to chapter 5, and in chapter 5, there is this scroll that's written on the front and on the back. And typically, this is very important because back in those days, scrolls were never written from front to back. But basically, what John was trying to let us know is that this scroll was very important and full of information. And some would say, what was the information in that scroll that was sealed with seven seals? Now, I would say this. Many scholars, very com commentaries believe this. That scroll declared the finality of all things. That scroll would tell all of humanity exactly how everything would end. And as John looked at that scroll, the elders there and the heavenly host there, he saw that no one was able to open that scroll, and he wept. Why? Why would he weep? Because there is a sense of lostness. There was a sense of how would we know, right? There is a sense of blindness without that scroll being open and he wept and wept until one of the elders came to him and said do not weep because the lion of the tribe of judah the root of jesse is worthy to open up the scroll and then he turned and he looked and he saw a lamb and he describes it this way a lamb that looked like it was slain but stood and it had seven horns what the seven horns represent the mighty strength of God. And seven eyes. What do the seven eyes represent? The omniscience of God. The, uh, he knows everything because God is omniscient. He knows all things. And the seven spirits that go among the church, what does that mean? The manifestation of the power of God in the midst of the world. And, and, and what did they do? The elders, the angels, all of heaven and all of earth worships Jesus who is worthy and who is the Savior of the world, who is the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. Anybody ever heard a lion just purr? Rebecca and I, I, I share this often. There used to be this place off of Fremont Turnpike. Do you remember they had like a zoo that had animals at the Fremont Turnpike? And uh, they, they had lions and things and cool cats and stuff like that. And I used to love just being able to go there. It was cool. You can just go there and see these things real close. I was kind of scared of the fence. You know, because I ain't no way that, fe that fence is going to keep that sucker in there. Right? I mean, I mean, it was kind of intimidating, but it was just awesome. One time we went there, and this lion was purring, just purring. And it put the fear of God in me. 
It was just purring, like this. <laughs> okay, I'm going to stay here, right? It was just a real intimidating deal. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to hear a lion roar, you know, in person. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And yet at the same time that he's king, he is the lamb of God. And the, and the, word, the Greek word lamb there is the weakest of lambs. It's a little lamb, a baby lamb, an innocent lamb. Who is this God that reveals himself to us? He's king of kings and Lord of lords who makes himself vulnerable to pay the price of sin so that you and I can be redeemed. The Lamb of God. Would you stand with me? So, so 